invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Revelation 7. Our blessed hope. When we speak of our blessed hope, we're speaking of a statement made by Paul to the pastor Titus in Titus chapter 2. We read of this concept in verses 11 through 14 of Titus 2, which tells us this, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what we are studying, the events surrounding Jesus' sure return. This morning, of course, we don't study Jesus' return proper. We're still quite a ways from that as far as Revelation is concerned. We're going to uh, be going to the Old Testament in a few weeks and seeing some concepts surrounding it as it relates to the Old Testament, then connecting that back to the New Testament. But we are going to see uh, a unique twofold picture of the blessed hope this morning in Revelation chapter 7. The first group that we're going to look at is a group of people who are just stepping into the reality of their blessed hope. A group of people who are sealed by God within this time uh, of the 70th week of Daniel as we would understand it. And they're sealed by God uh, unto that blessed hope in, in the same way that we are looking for that blessed hope. And then we are going to transition to a group of people who have found that blessed hope, who have realized that blessed hope, a group that is just going to start the race, and then a group that is just going to finish the race, if we can put it that way. And we're going to be reminded of that end for we who are in Christ. Last week we finished with uh, the opening of the sixth seal. We are going to continue talking about the sixth seal in a manner of speaking today and next week uh, as well. Six of seven seals now we have seen opened uh, within this 70th week of Daniel. Recall that the seals seal a book, a scroll as it were, that's written on both sides. We would presume this to have perhaps the judgments of God, perhaps uh, that which is coming up next. We'll see uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks an angel with a little book or a little scroll written, and that would seem to have some mysteries as to the purposes of God within this end times on them. So we're not sure what is written, but this we do know that the only one worthy to open that book and to read the contents of that book is the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. So as Jesus opened each one of these seals, we saw strange things happening both in heaven and in earth. The beast saying, come and see, they would look and they would see... Uh, of course, the white horse and the red horse and the pale horse and the black horse, uh, black horse and pale horse, and the events within the world surrounding it. By the time the sixth seal is opened, uh, a full one quarter, uh, one th- quarter of the earth's population has been destroyed. Uh, there's been wars, there's been famine, there's been pestilence, there's been um, uh, beasts of the earth that have been destroying people. There has been martyrdom. In the fifth seal, there was martyrdom. And then in the sixth seal, recall, we had this 
natural catastrophe take place. The Bible describes uh, the heavens departing as a scroll. We don't know exactly what that means, but it would at least seem to be, at the very least, uh, the atmosphere opening up in some way that, that, that various elements of the heavenlies of, of outer space are able to penetrate the atmosphere because the stars are going to fall from heaven. There's going to be an earthquake that is going to move islands and move mountains off of their foundations. Topographically, they are going to change. Geographically, they are going to change. We then left the earth last week with men and women hiding in the caves and the dens in the earth, begging the, the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the Lamb that is upon the throne. And we acknowledged last week that though these men and these women will recognize that this is the judgment of God, will recognize that the wrath of God has come upon them. This will not lead them to repentance. Rather, it will lead them to harder hearts. We'll see that more pointedly uh, as we get into the trumpet judgments. This leads us into Revelation 7. We are still very much in this context. We are still presumably within the time of the sixth seal. And the Bible says this beginning in verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So our text begins with an after these things, which tells us that the events that are happening today in Revelation 7 are events that must um, come after the opening of the sixth seal that do come after the earthquake and such. We don't get a lot of clear chronology in Revelation. So anytime you see something like this, anytime you see just a little after these things, uh, take note of that. Because there's several times where John just says, and I saw. Okay, well, he saw something that doesn't tell us when when he saw it, right? That doesn't tell us when it happened. That doesn't tell us if it's happening previously, if it's happening concurrently. And so we're, we're looking for these clues. And again, it doesn't really matter that much in the broader scheme of things. But as you walk through this, as we walk through this over the weeks, I'm going to keep pointing out, this is kind of why we believe what we believe about this. When we look at the chronology, when we see what's happening, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, this is the reason why we've come to some of the conclusions that we come to as far as when the rapture takes place, when the midpoint of the tribulation is. And while there's great debate surrounding these things, if you read the text naturally, there are certain things that just... Uh, you say, would, would this be here at this time or would that be there at that time? When you read things like after these things, you, you're seeing a chronological mark that helps us understand some of these things. So this tells us, as far as John's vision is concerned, that the things he sees in chapter 7 come sequentially after the things that he saw in chapter 6. Now again, we are making an assumption that because he's seeing them in this order, they are happening in this order chronologically in the end times. That is an assumption. That's an assumption. But it's a pretty reasonable assumption, right? I'd say it's a pretty reasonable assumption that that it's it's a safe assumption that if he's seeing the things happening in this order, then they are going to happen in this order. One other important thing to note is that the seventh seal is not opened, as I mentioned, until chapter 8, which means that these things we would expect are happening. These things are happening after the sixth seal is opened, so this is, we can safely say it's a part of the sixth seal still. 
Different commentators will say that chapter 7 is kind of an aside, a parenthesis, a, a commentary on some other things that are going on. I think that after these things uh, makes it pretty clear that we're still in our context. We're still in our chronology. We're still at the, the opening of the sixth seal. So while the sixth seal begins with this um, earthquake and the heavens departing like a scroll and people hiding, there are other things that are happening at this time as well. So what John sees here is four angels standing on what he calls the four corners of the earth. This would simply mean that they are encompassing all the earth in their action. We obviously know that the earth does not have corners, right? Uh, the earth is not a square. The earth is not a cube. We know these things. This is not an attempt to be scientifically accurate. This is an attempt to reflect upon, to reflect in, in a simple idiomatic way that the entire earth is being spanned and covered here, right? So that, that's the idea here. This is not scientific language. This is idiomatic language. Uh, if I said uh, something to the effect of, wow, that's a really cool shirt you have on, nobody thinks I'm implicitly saying that shirt looks cold. It means I think that that shirt looks neat, right? Idiomatic language. We're allowed to do these things. We still call it a sunrise. We still call it a sunset. If you open up a weather app on your phone, most likely you'll see something about a sunrise and a sunset. That's not because the weather app is unscientific, right? The sun does not rise. The sun does not set. We know that. It's simply put that this is an idiom in our language that relates to what we understand, right? So just to get that out of the way, they're saying that the actions of the angels here touch every part of the earth. If we can call it this, every corner of the earth. And what they are going to do is they are going to hold back the winds so that they do not blow on the earth. Uh, I tried to look up a little bit here as to whether or not uh, anyone has speculated about what would happen if all of the winds stopped, obviously we have things such as tides and currents and, and uh, I don't know if that would include the jet stream and all of these different things. But one way or another, particularly with modern day instrumentation, this is going to become, this is going to be weird, right? People are going to know that something strange is happening if there is no wind on the earth. We continue then picking up in verses 2 and 3. John says, and I saw another angel. So we have the four angels holding back the winds, right? And I saw another angel ascend from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till I have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So these angels are stop the wind in anticipation of hurting the earth and the sea in some way. Perhaps the, the stopping of the wind itself is a part of that intent upon damaging, hurting the earth and the sea and the trees. However, before that happens, an angel comes from the east and says, don't do it yet. And he has a seal of God in his hand, the Bible says, that he contains, contains with him the seal of the living God. Now, we talked last week a little bit about what a seal is. Let's go over that again and reiterate it. A seal, generally, as is generally thought, is a wax coin that serves two primary purposes. You would see it on a letter, perhaps as you'd see here, that is sealing that letter shut. Generally speaking, the, the wax coin would serve two purposes. First, it protects or validates the contents within 
the, the letter, right? If you put a seal on a letter, then that seal is broken. The seal being broken shows that that seal has been tampered with or that that letter has been breached. That being said, there are plenty of ways to reseal wax, right? Wax melts, so you can melt it back on, no problem. There are lots of easy ways to do that. However, there is not necessarily an easy way to reproduce an emblem. And so kings would have rings or something of the sort that would have their mark, their crest, their emblem. Nobles in, in uh, early Europe would have this as well, where they'd have an emblem so that when they wrote a letter, they would seal that letter, and then while the wax was still soft, they would put their emblem into that wax, and that would show who the letter is from, validating the authority by which that letter was sealed and the authority by which that letter was sent. And so if a person received that letter, even if it had been tampered, with, they would know based upon the fact that the seal was not proper, right? Because the wax would have to be melted and that seal would have to be removed in order to get that letter open without damaging it. So we have this idea of protection, validation. Uh, and then secondly, as we, we spoke of, the seal also speaks of ownership. That you seal something that is yours. I don't know if you've ever seen those large sepulchers maybe at, at, at uh, uh, some cemetery, but you see a large sepulcher and there's a family crest over that sepulcher. Or back um, in, in the more feudal days in England, uh, there would be a family crest. I know my, I've had a few people in my family really get into uh, the family trees and whatnot. And, and my, my dad has one of those books and it has the Wickler family crest on it that was uh, from the days in Austria. My, my, my dad's side, they were Austrian Jews, and they had a family crest and this sort of thing. And so there was this family heritage, and there was a crest that was meant to represent the family. And so there's this ownership idea that the things that you have your crest on are yours. Uh, cattle, right? Ranches. They, put, they brand their cattle. You put a cattle brand on your cattle, and the people, as, as they're all, all the cattle are grazing out in the field, you know which ones are yours and which ones aren't yours by the brand on the cattle. This is that same idea here of the seal. So the angel comes with the seal of the living God in his hand, something that testifies of God's safekeeping and something that testifies of God's ownership. And he cries unto the four angels and he tells them not to smite the earth, not to hurt the earth, not to hurt the sea, not to hurt the trees until a, the, the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. So this sealing, what is it? We'll see as we walk throughout the book. It is certainly a mark of ownership. We would call it today uh, that, that idea of being saved. We know that the Bible tells us in Ephesians that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day, until the redemption of the purchased possession. So though we obviously don't have a physical mark on our foreheads or whatever the case may be, spiritually speaking, there is some seal. There is some mark. Uh, uh, we, we, we see the evidence of that mark through the Spirit of God, whether the Spirit of God is exclusively it or whether there is some sort of mark that can be seen in the spiritual realm that we simply cannot see. Uh, we, we don't have enough uh, in the Scriptures to know. But what we find here is that there is a seal to be put on the foreheads of the servants of God. And so this would be a safekeeping uh, or an ownership seal, but it's also going to be a safekeeping seal. And we'll see that as we walk through as well, that these, these servants of God that are sealed here are kept safe. That there are certain plagues that will plague the world that will not touch those that are sealed. 
that will not affect those that are sealed. Particularly, we're going to look at a plague of, of demonic, locust-like beasts that will torment the earth for five months, but they will be told explicitly, do not torment anyone with the mark of God, with the seal of God on their forehead. And so this is a separation, this is a protection, this is an ownership idea. The question was asked in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, at the opening of the sixth seal, when the, the people were crying out, begging the, the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. They said, The great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Well, the servants of God will be able to stand. That's kind of the answer to that question. And it's interesting that right after the wicked on the earth proclaim this statement, Who can stand against the wrath of God? We see the sealing of 144,000 Jews. And we'll see then that these plagues do not touch these 144,000. Who can stand in the day of God's wrath? God's servants can stand in the day of God's wrath because God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And we know this from the Word of God. So these angels, they are prohibited from hurting the earth until a certain group of servants are sealed. We read about those servants beginning in verse 4. The Bible says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nephtalim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. So the servants of God who are sealed, 144,000 in number, 12,000 from 12 tribes in Israel. By this we see, again, that God is fully determined to protect the nation of Israel throughout this terrible time. We've mentioned already, and we will certainly see as we start studying Daniel in a few weeks, how pointed the persecution and the destruction of Israel is as a point of, uh, of determination within the 70th week of Daniel. Antichrist wants them gone. Satan wants them gone. If Israel is destroyed, as we talked about when we studied the kingdom, God's work cannot be accomplished. God's work cannot be finished. God fails if Israel is destroyed, if His promised people are destroyed. We see here this focus upon the nation of Israel, and it reminds us again that God has Israel on His mind. We've been studying that, and it's been become very clear in Jeremiah as we've been studying it. God has the nation of Israel on His mind. As He thinks toward the future, He has the nation of Israel on His mind. And of course, we as a church reject the notion that the church has replaced Israel. We've talked about that quite a bit. The notion that the nation of Israel has no future in God's plans. We reject the interpretation as a fundamental misrepresentation of what God promises in the Old Testament. We believe it contradicts the New Testament as well, what God teaches through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And passages like this today. What we're going to see as we continue through Revelation 7 is there's going to be a group of people from every nation and tribe and tongue under heaven crying out of their redemption 
And so we see here this distinction made between this group from every tribe and nation and tongue and this group from the nation of Israel to where once again we see that God has separated Israel from the rest of the world. God has set them apart. God has made them exclusive. And the language of Revelation 7 is reiterating this reality. I personally believe there's no biblically consistent way to interpret these verses other than to say that the nation of Israel still has a plan in God's, a place in God's plan. So we see the 12,000 people, they're sealed from 12 representative tribes. But there is one tribe missing from this reckoning. And I'd like to talk about that with you and explore that just a little bit. The 12 tribes that are given are as followed. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, which is Asher from the Old Testament, Nephtalim, which is Naphtali from the Old Testament, Manassas, which is Manasseh, pretty close there, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zabulon, which is Zebulun, Joseph, which would be Ephraim, and Benjamin. These are the 12 names that are given. Now, there is a unique and important omission here. We know that Israel had 12 sons. From those sons came 12 portions of land inheritance. But recall that the tribe of Levi did not get an inheritance uh, of the land, right? Because their inheritance was the Lord. And we read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9. I'll read it in just a moment. Levi got a spiritual inheritance because they had followed the Lord uh, in the day where the people worshipped the golden calf and Moses asked for who's on the Lord's side and and his tribe, his family, the family of Levi got on his side. And because of that, God gave them the right to be the, the particular tribe that would minister before him. Before that, God was just going to use the firstborn from every family. And the firstborn would be the one consecrated unto the Lord. But then after this, God says, I'm going to allow the tribe of Levi to have this right to be uh, the blessed tribe and their inheritance would be the Lord. They will not get a land inheritance. Their inheritance will be the Lord. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9, Wherefore Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance according as the Lord thy God promised him. But the land was still divided into 12 portions. There were still 12 tribes that inherited, even though Levi did not inherit. And that's because of the birthright. Recall that a birthright allowed for the eldest son to have a double portion of an inheritance, right? He got the double portion, and then the rest of the children received an inheritance that was was their own, a single portion. The, the, the firstborn son got the double portion. Now, Israel's firstborn son was Reuben from, the, the, from Israel's first wife, Leah. However, Reuben lost his birthright. He lost his double portion because of his sin. We learn about this in Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. What Jacob says this as he blesses his sons. He says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable is water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. 
Israel tells his son that he will not excel because he defiled his father's bed. We learn of this in Genesis 35.22. I'm not going to turn there. But in Genesis 35.22, we learn that Reuben went in unto his father's concubine, Bilhah, and lay with her. Now, Bilhah was the maid that Rachel gave to Jacob when Rachel was barren and she couldn't have children. And Leah was having a lot of children. So Rachel sought to compete with her sister by giving Bilhah to Jacob. And she had two children. Children for Jacob. Um, Dan and Naphtali were the two children that she had with Jacob. The, Dan was the fifth born, Naphtali was the sixth born of Jacob's sons. So this woman who was a concubine of Jacob's and who had had two children for Jacob, Reuben went in unto her and lay with her and defiled his father's bed, and this was an egregious sin. Therefore, he lost his birthright. And that birthright was given, transferred over to the eldest son of his second wife, Rachel. And the eldest son of his second wife, Rachel, was Joseph. Now, we know Joseph was also a tremendous young man and a tremendous old man and a tremendous man, right? There's, he's one of few, uh, I think pretty much just two people in the Bible of which there is nothing negative said about them in the entire account. That doesn't mean he was sinlessly perfect, but there's nothing negative said about him in any of the accounts that we have of his life and his ministry and his death. So Joseph was a tremendous man of God. And Joseph, while in Egypt, because recall he was sold to Egypt, had two sons. And his two sons were Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh being the elder of his two sons, Ephraim being the younger of his two sons. In Genesis 48, Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob before uh, his death and he desires Jacob to bless his two sons. And Jacob puts his right hand, the hand of power, the hand of favor on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Now Joseph had positioned the sons so that the right hand, the hand of blessing, would go upon Manasseh because Manasseh was the eldest. But Jacob knowingly, wittingly switched those because he knew prophetically that Ephraim would become the stronger son, that Ephraim would become the greater son. And so Jacob puts this blessing and then he says that Manasseh and Ephraim will both inherit a portion in Israel. Each will become their own tribe. And between Manasseh and Ephraim, we have represented there the birthright. That Jacob, uh, Joseph, excuse me, received a double portion of the inheritance because both of his sons received a full portion of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what that effectively means is that there are effectively 13 tribes in Israel, right? Uh, if you include Levi, if you include uh, Manasseh and Ephraim separately, there are 13 tribes. But we only have 12 divisions of land here. Well, that's not a problem, right? Because leave, uh, not land of, of ceilings. Uh, but that's not a problem because, what about Levi? Well, in this case, here's what we find. We find in this listing of 12 tribes in Revelation that Levi is mentioned. Levi gets 12,000 sealed. And we have Manasseh. And then we have Joseph. Remember, Ephraim was the one that got the blessing. So Ephraim kind of inherited the name of, of the father there. They were, uh, Ephraim here is called Joseph. But that's certainly, most certainly Ephra, uh, Ephraim is the tribe there. So we have Ephraim, we have Manasseh, and we have Levi, who's missing? The tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan is missing. 
Now, as we continue to walk through, this was, of course, Dan was the firstborn of Bilhah's children, the, the fifthborn of Jacob's sons. As we, we walk through the text, nobody really knows why Dan is missing. I have a theory as to why Dan is missing here. If we interpret Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, and if you're familiar, I've preached through Ezekiel. It was a long time ago. Most of you weren't here, I don't think. But I've preached through Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 40 through 48, we see this enumeration of this gigantic temple, bigger than anything Israel has ever built, bigger than anything that's ever been on the Temple Mount. It's this massive temple. And we interpret it to be the temple that will stand during the millennium. And during this time, there is a listing of tribes and there are land allotments given to the tribes in Israel again. And Dan is in that. And we interpret Ezekiel 40 to 48 as being during the millennial time. So we do not believe that Dan goes away. And we do not believe that Dan has even been stripped of their inheritance because we believe that they will receive a portion of inheritance in the millennial kingdom if Ezekiel 40 to 48 is the millennium. And again, we're, that's interpretation there. But they do not receive a portion in this ceiling. And the only reason that, that, that has come to my mind, and I, I haven't read this anywhere, it's just something that my own study has brought me to, is that Dan has a very unique history. What most commentators say is that Dan was the first tribe to fall wholesale into idolatry, which they were, and that might be the problem. But I think it runs a little deeper than that. In Joshua chapter 19, the Bible tells us that the inheritance of the tribe of Jan, Dan was just north of the, the inheritance of Judah, west of Ephraim and Benjamin, and then it bordered the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. But the tribe really, really struggled to subdue the, the, the enemies of the land. So much so that Judges chapter 1 verse 34 tells us that the people of Dan were not allowed to go into the valleys of their own inheritance. And they were stuck in the mountains, and every time they tried to go into the valleys, the Amorites would kick them back out. And they had no power to overcome the Amorites. What this means is that they had no faith, because the Bible stated clearly in Joshua and Judges that if they had the faith to take it, God would give it to them. So they were stuck in the mountains, and they were very unhappy with this. Uh, the, the valleys were where the, fertile, you know, where the fertility was, where they could grow the crops, where they could have rest, where they could have protection. And they were stuck in the mountains, not allowed to go to the valleys. Well, we skip ahead, and we actually don't skip ahead very long in time, but we skip ahead a long time in Judges. If you recall when we taught through Judges in Sunday school a while back, Judges does not go chronological. Uh, we skip to Judges chapter 18. In Judges chapter 18, verse 1, the Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in, for unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. We skip to verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people that were there, excuse me, therein, how they dwelt careless after the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure. And there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. And they were far from the Zidonians and had no business with any man. And they came unto their brethren to Zorah and Eshtaol. And their brethren said unto them, What say ye? And they said, Arise, that we may go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And are ye still? Be not slothful to go, 
and to enter to possess the land. So Dan ends up finding this valley. And in this valley is a group of Zidonians. But the Zidonians are quite a distance from their nation, from the power of their nation, which means they're fairly unprotected. And they're living in peace, and they're living quietly, and they've got this nice little valley, and they don't have magistrates, and they're just kind of doing their thing, kind of a communal living, minding their own business. They're happy. And, and Dan says, we can, we can take them out. We can't handle the Amorites, but we can handle them. And so Dan actually goes and slaughters the entire group of people and takes this piece of land as their inheritance. And they have uh, an idolatrous priest who says the Lord is going to bless you in this, and it just gets really messy. So they take this land, and they actually almost set up their own little kingdom. They get, uh, presumably, who might actually be uh, the son of Moses, and he's a Levite, and they get him as their own little personal priest with all of his little idols, and they worship these little idols in their, in, in their land. Well, remember, let me go back one slide. Remember the, two slides, remember the portion that they had been given by God, right? Down near Judah. Now let's take a look at the portion where they overtook. That was right here. They are now way up at the very northern tip of Israel. They are at the northern tip. This is where they settled. This is where the tribe of Dan actually settled. This was not the land God had given them. This was nowhere near the land that God had given them. They had effectively abandoned the land that God gave them and settled in a place wholly outside of what God had given to them. And I believe this is the reason why they're left out here. Because of any tribe in Israel, they did not just fail to secure all of their inheritance. They did not just struggle with um, obeying. They abandoned the inheritance of God for them. And they went and they lived in an entirely different region. They stopped trying to keep God's, uh, keep God's inheritance, they, they, they abandoned the land. The land was important. So much so that in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, if you'd sold any land, you'd get it back. God wanted the land to stay with the people. And Dan entirely abandoned their land. And I believe that, that, uh, that this, is, this is the closest thing I can come to anything that, that sounds reasonable as to why it would be that Dan is missing. And Dan is very distinct in this way, that they abandoned the inheritance of the Lord that God had given to them. And I believe that this is why they do not have a part in this 144,000 that God seals. Again, this is just my speculation, but it's the closest I can come to a reasonable explanation. The Bible does not give one. We continue then uh, with this 144,000. They are sealed. For, for whatever reason, Dan is missing. But these 144,000 out of these 12 representative tribes in Israel are sealed by God. And we continue reading in verses 9 through 12. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So 
we now change context very directly. John saw a sealing, and that was taking place on the earth, that an angel stopped things happening on the earth because he says, don't hurt the earth until these are sealed. We know that these people are living. We know that these people are still on the earth. And who is there? It's Israel. Israel is still there. God is sealing those of Israel. Then we come to the heavenlies. We come back to the throne of God, and there's this great multitude. And notice here the distinction not from just from Israel, but from every tongue and every nation. Now, remember what we talked about last time. Remember how we talked about Joel, right? And the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. And how that prophecy is fulfilled with the opening of the sixth seal. And how this would likely have been a, a tremendously important sign to Israel that would cause Israel to say, this is Joel 2, what just happened, the opening of the sixth seal, the heavens departing as a scroll, stars falling from heaven, uh, the moon turning, uh, the, 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 the sun being blackened, the moon turning to blood. This is the sixth seal, and they'd say Joel 2 is true, and the first half of Joel 2 must have already happened, and they're going to pinpoint that that happened with Christ, and, they're, and, and of course, all of this is being found in the New Testament, right, in Revelation. Revelation, we're seeing the, the promises of this fulfilled, and they're going to say Jesus Christ is Messiah, and that's probably where this 144,000 are going to come from. They're going to recognize Christ as Messiah because of the correlation between Revelation 6 and the sixth seal and the prophecies in Joel. But then, and, and, and so again, all of that just commends itself to the idea that we're on the earth, God is focusing on Israel. Right? God is focusing on Israel. Then we get to the heavens and we see this innumerable host from every nation and tongue. The Bible says, nation, kindred, people, tongue. They stand before the throne and they're standing before the Lamb. And this multitude is said to be clothed in white robes, a symbol of purity, a symbol that they have been, they, that, that they are sinless. And in their hands were palms. Palms are a symbol of peace, a symbol of triumph, reminiscent of the day that Jesus went through Jerusalem on the donkey. And the people put their palms on the ground and they put their garments on the ground and said, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, saying that he was coming in peace, he was coming in victory. The multitude, verse 9 says, is from all of these nations. And their song is this. Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. It's a song of rejoicing in their salvation. They are rejoicing to see this 144,000 sealed. The people from all tribes, all tongues, and all nations who are already before the throne, who have already uh, received their, their rewards, who have already uh, run their race and finished their course, whether it be by martyrdom or whether it be by death, they are now looking down and they're seeing these 144,000 sealed from Israel and they're seeing God's plan worked out and they're, they're proclaiming the blessing of salvation. The redeemed of the Gentile world is rejoicing in the redeemed of Israel. And rightfully they should. Paul told us in Romans chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, I say then, have they, speaking of national Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them, Israel, be the riches of the world, the Gentile world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? How much more 
glory and honor and greatness unto the Lord on the day when the Israel is brought back into the covenant blessing of God through salvation, through accepting their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is what the proclamation is about here. They are proclaiming the glories of salvation as they see God bringing the nation of Israel back to himself, calling them and the nation actually responding to him. To this end, these Gentiles rejoice in the sealing of the 144,000. This sign that God has given that he is going to restore his people, the fulfillment of the great promises of God. And so they cry out. And as they cry out, the Bible says that the angels which were surrounding the throne, the elders around the throne, the four beasts around the throne, they all fall on their face and they worship God. You see where the focus goes here? We spend so much of our time in Revelation focusing on what's going to happen and when. And Revelation spends so much of its time focusing on who. Right? <laughs> Let's remember the who. They are worshiping the Lamb on the throne. It is Christ's day. It is Christ's time. He is worthy. It is His power. It is His vindication. He's going to vindicate us. He's going to avenge us. He's going to vindicate Himself. He's going to avenge Himself. He is being glorified above every name that is named. And this is what we're reading here. All created beings in the heavenlies are bowing before Him and crying out for His worthiness. This distinction is made in the heavenlies in verses 13 and 14. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And, he, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One of the elders turns to John, and asks the identity of those who are in the white robes. Who are these that are proclaiming salvation from every tongue and tribe and nation? Where do they come from? And John says, well, you know. I don't know. You know, though. The elder says, these are the men and women that came out of great tribulation. They had had their robes washed white. In other words, their course was over. They are now pure. They are now uh, uh, sinless. They are redeemed, having come out of great tribulation. Now take note of this. There are some significant assumptions that we make regarding the nature of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We assume that the book catalogs the entire 70th week of Daniel, even though, as I mentioned last week, the, Bible, the Revelation never actually says that it covers the entire seven, seven years. It never says that. This is an assumption that we make. It talks about 1,260 days. It talks about 42 months, both of those being three and a half years. But it never talks about a full seven-year span. We also assume some other things. We assume the timing of events, generally assume the seals and the trumpets take place before and up to the midpoint and the vials afterwards, but these are assumptions. Now here we see these men and women that come out of what they call great tribulation. And many people try to connect this to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, that after the abomination of desolation, there will be a time of great tribulation. Tribulation, And they say, okay, so these that came out, this timing, it has to be after the midpoint. It has to be during the Great Tribulation. But once again, that is an assumption. Because Great Tribulation is not identification here, it is description. And as a matter of fact, in Jesus' day as well, it's description. The idea that great the only time of Great Tribulation on this earth it, for Christians is the time of 
great tribulation, as Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, is an assumption. It is not something that is definitive. This is not necessarily talking about the great tribulation as we have identified it. And we've labeled it that. Jesus did not label it the great tribulation. He simply said it was a time of great tribulation. And so we have this assumption. But it is a term of description, not a term of identity. It's a term that's not trying to, that's not explicitly telling us when something's happening, just what is happening. And so these nations, these people, they come out of great tribulation. And perhaps this is talking about the fifth seal. We can remember that after the fifth seal was opened in Revelation 6, there was an innumerable host of souls under the throne saying, when are you going to avenge us? Now, these souls had not apparently received their bodies yet. They were just souls still. And they were crying out for vengeance over martyrdom. And God says, I will avenge you after a little while when the rest of your brethren are martyred as well. Right? So we might see that as being those that have come out of the great tribulation or out of great tribulation. What we really focus on, however, as, as it relates to this is what we see at the end of the chapter here in verses 15 through 17. The Bible says, Therefore are they become, that would be these that have come out of great tribulation who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The focus here is not on timing. The focus is on martyrdom. That many Christians are going to die. That many followers of Christ are going to die. And yet the focus as it relates to martyrdom is not their death. Their death is generally passed over quite quickly. The focus as it relates to martyrdom is right here in the, in the throne of God. And here's what the elder says. All these that came out of great tribulation, all these that are now before the throne, they're not, they don't hunger anymore. They don't thirst anymore. The sun does not beat on them as they work hard for their daily bread anymore. Instead, the lamb feeds them, gives them to drink of the fountains of living water. He has wiped all the tears from their eyes. These are the tears of suffering. These are the tears of martyrdom. These are the tears that come from the sufferings that they have had to endure in the midst of great tribulation. And all those tears are wiped away and replaced with joy and peace. And this is the object. This is the focal point. The 144,000, they get sealed on the earth and they, they, their time is coming. <clears throat> They've just started their race and martyrdom is on the schedule for them too. We'll see in a few chapters. They're going to die. They'll be protected until a certain point and then God will allow them to be slain. But these from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, these have finished their course. They have gone through the suffering. They have, they have worked. They have labored. Then they have died and now they're in, in the heavenlies. They have gone from serving for their blessed hope to their hope becoming real, reality. And that was the title of our sermon, Our Blessed Hope. That is also 
our application this morning. One simple point. Remember your blessed hope. Now you and I, we're not in a period of great tribulation today, are we? Uh, We are not in a period of great tribulation. We don't have to worry about people, uh, government representatives coming and bursting through these doors this morning and disbanding us and arresting us because we are unlawfully assembling, because we're not unlawfully assembling. In fact, the First Amendment of of the Constitution of the United States gives us the right to assemble. We don't have to worry that we're going to have bricks thrown through our windows and houses burned down and uh, be slain by some other sect as the Christians in Syria and Ethiopia and Egypt do right now. Nigeria, where entire communities of Christians are being deposed, their houses burned to the ground, being killed for the faith by radical Muslim groups. We're not going through a time of great tribulation in the West today, although, as I just mentioned, there are plenty of places around the globe where Christians are going through great tribulation. Regardless, however, of the state of the church in the West, the blessed hope of the believer has and must always be the appearing of Jesus Christ, as we read at the beginning in Titus 2. This is not just the blessed hope of those who suffer the evil and the wrath of man against truth. Not just the blessed hope of those who are being beheaded and those whose houses are being burned down and those who are having to hide out just to be able to meet together and assemble as the Lord has commanded us to do. But you know, it's also the blessed hope of all who labor and strive against sin. One of the things that we read is that those who were in the heavenlies had had their robes washed white through the blood of the Lamb. They were pure. And whether or not we suffer physical persecution in this life, I know this, we are all struggling against sin. And it's a daily struggle. The Bible generally teaches that our battle against sin comes in three forms. Our battle against three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this battle rages every day of our lives Scripture reminds us of this battle regularly. We read of Paul and talking about this battle in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. For what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So Paul is struggling with this frustration that on the one end he has what he calls his mind that desires and delights to do the, the will of God, but then he has this thing called his flesh. He has this thing called carnality. He has this sin nature, and this sin nature is warring against him. It is fighting against him. There is this battle raging within him. 
And he goes on in chapter 8, of course, to say that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is not a statement of defeat. This is a statement that reminds us that we must be walking in the Spirit and so not to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we contend against our own flesh. Paul makes it clear we contend against our own flesh. We also contend against the world. And by this, of course, we don't mean the people. We talked about this in Sunday school. Rather, we contend against the philosophy of the world. John defines it, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The darkness of this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul calls us to flee fornication. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Paul calls us to flee from idolatry. In 2 Timothy 2, 22, Paul calls us to flee from the love of money. The promises of this world are destructive. They are misguided. The love of the world is futile. So we're called to have our minds focused upon that which is to come. To keep our minds on our blessed hope. Are you struggling against sin today? You are. I can confidently say that. You are. I am. We have this thing in us called our flesh. And it's going to be there. It's going to burden us. It's going to plague us until the day that we die. But then the day that you die, you'll receive that white robe that's been washed in the blood of the Lamb, pure, sinless, untainted, unspotted, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Paul says. That's your blessed hope. Even if our tears are not tears of sorrow physically because of the sufferings of this life, I hope in, in some metaphorical way you shed tears over your sinful nature. That there is this frustration within you over your sin nature. Not to despair. Not to discouragement. But simply this overarching frustration that I just wish my sin could go away. Well, those, that's going to be wiped away one day too. And that is our blessed hope. And this has been the hope of those of years gone by. So we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I skip to verse 13. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out, where they lived, they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. Those who have this blessed hope before their eyes are those who, as we read about God saying to these, these men and these women or the elders saying about them that there is no hunger and there's no thirst and that all the tears are wiped away from their eyes, we look at that and we say that is our country, that's our home, that is what we're living for, that is what we're striving for. Hebrews chapter 12 would go on to say that we have not strived against sin unto blood. In other words, our striving against sin hasn't killed us, so let's just keep doing it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, I mentioned it already. 
in part, 1 John's writings on the world, John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a battle every day that we are engaged in to walk by faith and not by sight. And what is a big part of this battle? Keeping the blessed hope before your eyes. Seeking a better country whose builder and maker is God. To yield that which we can see, but only for a time, for that which we cannot see, but that which is eternal. And this is a battle. But it's a battle which one day will be over. One day the Lamb will feed us. He will lead us to the fountains of water. He will wipe away all tears. And so we are called, as we talked about again in Sunday school this morning, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, to put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are called to put on the whole armor of God because this is where the battle is fought. Looking for that glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We are people zealous for good works today. And each day is a battle. Each day is a battle to maintain our zeal. Each day is a battle to maintain our distinctives. Each day must be approached with the gravity of a soldier going into battle putting on the armor of God. Now, I'm not trying to stress this morning the possibility of victory. In Christ's victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil is not just a possibility. It is already secured. It's simply for us to walk in the Spirit and not to fulfill the lust of the flesh. But what I am trying to highlight through the Word of God this morning is that every day, for every man and woman of faith, there is a battle against these foes. Whether it is that we are dealing with the, per, the, the physical persecutions, which God forbid we should have to, we pray every week that, we, that God would spare us that fate. I pray that every week in this service, in the morning service, that God would preserve for us the freedoms we hold dear, that God would preserve it for our children and our grandchildren. And it's not a vain prayer. It's not vain repetition. It is a weekly prayer. It is importunity before the Lord that we might see this come to pass. But as we pray this prayer, as we seek these things, we recognize that there's still a daily battle. But we also understand, and this is our blessed hope, that one day that battle will be over. It's already won. One day we will be clothed in the white robes that were washed by the blood of the Lamb. The great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, they have finished their course. Their battle is over. Their hunger is no more. Their thirst is no more. The sun no longer beats down upon them. He has wiped away their tears. That is our hope. That is what we look forward to one day. But may I encourage you in this as well, that as long as the Lord tarries, this battle is raging. Don't wake up in the morning complacent. Don't just float through this life because there is a battle to fight and the rest is coming. The blessed hope is on the horizon. We're reading about it, but we also read about 144,000 whose job had just begun. And our job is still. Our job is yet. As long as we are here, as long as the Lord gives us life and breath, let us not rest. As the old saying goes, I can rest when I'm dead, right? 
There's a time, there's time for the body to rest most certainly, but the spiritual battle rages every day. So let us not rest. Let us be sober. Let us be vigilant. Let us maintain that blessed hope, be a people zealous of good works, that we might, as Titus 2 said at the beginning of our sermon, live righteously, godly, in this present world. What is ours to do in this time? It is to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lusts, to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly, knowing this, that all whom he has redeemed, he redeemed unto this particular purpose, that we would be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.